Today's episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Reading Plus. I spent years as a literacy coach working with districts all around the country, and never once while meeting with teachers did I fail to hear the question, what about my resistant readers or my struggling readers? If only I had known about Reading Plus in those days, I would have had a much more satisfactory response for those teachers. Reading Plus integrates seamlessly with whatever ELA curriculum you're using, producing two and a half years of growth in just 60 hours of personalized instruction. Reading Plus's research-based design has been granted product certification from Digital Promise and the Tech and Learning Award of Excellence. The National Center on Intensive Intervention assessed Reading Plus with convincing evidence. One big plus is that you can use Reading Plus with your English language learners as it aligns with the WIDA standards framework and is a WIDA certified resource. Best of all, students like the text and the flexibility. They show high levels of engagement and consistently achieve reading growth, improving their learning across all academic content. You can find Reading Plus at edcuration.com. That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N dot com. Connect with Reading Plus today. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking and try to get them as much text as we can within that time. Because, of course, the more widely read students are that year, the better they do in vocabulary, the better they do in terms of closing gaps. You're listening to Ed Curation, the podcast where teachers talk curriculum. We make it easier for educators to find the resources they need to create fresh, lively, and authentic learning. Today, we welcome Kina Day, an 18-year veteran educator who has taught pretty much every variation of reading, writing, literature, and humanities from middle school to college. She worked in Tennessee as a district-level literacy coach, helping leaders to define and implement their vision for literacy. She later relocated to Denver, Colorado, and currently serves as the Senior Manager of Humanities for Denver Schools of Science and Technology. We had an enlightening conversation about culturally responsive literacy instruction. Definitely a hot topic. I think you'll learn a lot from Kina. I certainly did. Kina, welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me today. You recently participated in the Committing to Anti-Racist Curriculum and Instruction Conference that Ed Curation hosted, and your session was focused on critical thinking in an anti-racist literacy context. So what I'm curious about is, how do you define anti-racism in relation to literacy and literature, because honestly, and maybe this is just me, but I think this conversation is trickier in relation to literature than almost any other content area. Interesting. Yeah. So by definition, anti-racism in and of itself is just the policy and practice of opposing racism and also being able to teach that idea of racial tolerance. And so what I receive a lot of times especially from literature teachers, is they feel like that means that I have to get rid of texts that may have racial terminology in it, Mm -hmm. or I have to get rid of texts 
that were written by people who have said racist things. And honestly, like, I don't know if that's necessarily a way to do that within the space. I mean, because what are you going to do? Never teach Abraham Lincoln? Right. And Abraham Lincoln definitely said things that were explicit about inferior and superior and, you know, just not believing in, you know, rights for Black people. Like, he said that in the Stephen Douglas debates (laughs) before Mm. he was president, while he was running for president. But what am I supposed to do as a high school teacher? Never teach the second inaugural address again? That is not what anti-racism calls for. Because what it calls for is for us to be able to really bring to light and illuminate for students the understanding of like perspectives when it comes to race so that they can develop their own thinking about it. Dr. Ibram Kendi talks a lot about there not being a such thing as not racist. And so with that idea is this pushback against passively taking on these texts in our classrooms. We have to face that head on, make sure that we're bringing complex texts that can spur thinking. So of course we have to take some texts that don't do that. But like To Kill a Mockingbird, for instance, knowing that they use a lot of those pejoratives and whatnot, like at the end of the day, students need to be aware of that's how the world was at that time. And how does it speak to the world that you live in now? And Mm -hmm. what can we do to feel racial tolerance based on our information from this text? So that's basically like how it looks in the literacy space. Yeah. So it's all about the conversations and the framing of the text. And I think there's a misunderstanding that if you teach a text, you endorse the text or you endorse the ideas of the text. Whereas our job as literature teachers or, you know, facilitators of these discussions is to use texts as tools for thinking and talking about ideas, not about endorsing, using a text to reinforce or endorse our own ideas. I completely agree 100% that that, and it takes some, you know, teacher development to be able to, you know, get to that point. I want to come back to this and we will, but I also want to know, you focus really heavily on building critical thinking skills in your students in classrooms. And that was a big part of the session that you presented at the conference. And I'm wondering if you can just describe for us, what is the difference between an ELA classroom where this is happening and one where it's not? A classroom that, you know, has engaging critical thinking happening is a classroom where real world is connected to the work that they do in that classroom. The real world, like issues and statistics and, you know, even like what we're going to, what our world is going to look like in a couple of years. You know what I'm saying? Like all of those real world concepts have to be a part of the conversation. Discourse has to be a part of the conversation and authentic, you know, discourse where students are really sharing their thinking and the teacher is really facilitating And, you know, being done in a way where students are actually learning and building information among each other. Problem solving has to be at the center of the classroom. Revision of thinking and giving students the opportunity of understanding that, you know, you have to do things more than once in some cases to be able to dig as deep as you can or revise as much as you can to get a better product. Like that revision of thinking Mm -hmm. has to occur quite a bit for us to have critical thinking. And finally, one of the bigger parts is just to get to that space of creativity and giving students the opportunity to take the information they've learned, the problems that they saw, how this looks within real world, Mm -hmm. and now starting to create new information. 
you know, whether that's a product, whether that's a task, you know, but they need to be able to create to show mastery. And so those are just some of the like key components to critical thinking that should happen in a classroom, but also classrooms where students just get the opportunity to explore. I apologize once again that the sound quality on this Zoom call is less than optimal. So just to review quickly, Keena says that the primary indicators of critical thinking are number one, discussion of real world issues and events and connecting those discussions to the literature or content. Number two, students engaged in authentic problem solving. Number three, revision of thinking and the opportunity to revisit ideas and opinions and projects. And number four, the opportunity to use creativity and show mastery. How is this shift difficult for teachers? What is the learning curve for teachers in moving to facilitating critical thinking on the part of their students versus lecturing or a more traditional style of classroom? I'll be honest, like throughout my career, especially as a young teacher, who I was taught in a very Eurocentric, you know, background, and I'm from a very black space, you know, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. And so at the time when I was growing up, Detroit was about 90% or so black. And so all of my teachers were black, but I still was taught in a Eurocentric, you know, mindset. And that's what I liked. I liked Huckleberry Finn. I enjoyed reading Great Expectations. You know what I'm saying? I enjoyed reading Song of Solomon, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would try to bring these different things in and I knew about them. But when I became a teacher, you know, and I was getting ready to student teach, I had the books I wanted to teach. You know what I'm saying? I had the cute little activities I wanted to teach. (laughs) But then when I got there, a lot of my students could not read what I wanted to put in front of them. And nobody had taught me what to do in that case. Right. And so that is how I got into becoming a literacy specialist Mm. was because I immediately finished student teaching and went straight to like graduate school. So I can learn how secondary students learn how to read. So many of our teachers just don't know that information. So I'm guessing that you spend a lot of time, not right now, but in general, in classrooms, like visiting teachers, taking an instructional coaching role with some of your teachers. And I'm curious if you have an idea of like, what are the top three indicators for you when you walk into a classroom? If these three things are happening, or if I see these three things, I know this teacher's on the right track. The number one thing that I like to see, and I guess I'm speaking from this heavily virtual space because all of the classrooms I visit now are, you know, all virtual. But, you know, student voice. Like, if I can hear a classroom where student voice is key and it's like the heart of what's happening in the classroom and the teacher really respects that student voice as, you know, intellectual thought. And when I see that, I just get so excited. And the way that that looks would be, you know, a kid giving an opinion and the teacher wanting to push that student's thinking, but they validate that thought, they affirm that mm-hmm. thought, but then they get, they have those back pocket questions to, you know, drive students to deeper thinking and just knowing how to question to get students in a space of, you know, understanding from misunderstanding. I do appreciate students having the time to independently think 
and that the teacher not feeling like they have to fill all of the space with explanations. We need to be able to set our students up for opportunities to read silently, annotate, summarize, paraphrase, you know, things like that to make sure that they understand for themselves before they can jump into conversation. And I just appreciate when teachers give that type of respect. And I know it's a lot easier to do in person than it is, you know, virtually. And then finally, just when teachers talk about language and words that authors Mm -hmm. use Mm -hmm. and connotations of those words and how students can make those words like belong to them. We Mm. need to teach students how to make words become theirs. How do I snatch that word that I heard on, you know, CNN? Or how do I snatch that word that I just read, you know, in a book we're reading together? So teachers who are very intentional about explicit and implicit vocabulary strategies within their classrooms, to me, Mm -hmm. I think, like, really push students further, especially as we talk about SAT and PSAT and CMAS. So... I'm wondering, in your session, you challenge this misconception that we have to choose as teachers between cultural relevance and rigor. So can you address that a little bit? Like, where does that come from, that misconception? And why is it a misconception? I've seen this throughout the years that people really tend to feel that Texts that are diverse or by diverse authors are not necessarily rigorous. Mm-hmm. And in order for, you know, students to even understand the background, the setting, you know, even the language being used in the text, mm-hmm. like you have to really have a deep understanding of the world that existed at the time that text was written. Yeah. So that's critical thinking in and of itself, because here I am attaching to real world here i am you know applying that real world to what's happening in this story you know and so all of that is critical thinking a good example of that would be there is a text that i loved to teach and it was called the death of innocence by nikki giovanni that is historical fiction that is written in the voice of emmett till's mother mamie till and so Mamie Till is basically narrating for us how she felt as a mother to not know where her son was, not know what had happened to her son in Mississippi, and wondering what happened to her son in his final hours, knowing that making that decision to decide to show his face to America to show what racism did to a 14-year-old. And so to be able to grapple with that information, you have to understand segregation. You have to understand like racial laws that took place during that time, especially in Mississippi. You have to be able to apply that information to that story that Nikki Giovanni is telling, which is based on a true story. You know, there's no way that's not critical thinking. Because now I have to get beyond this impressionistic reading that I'm doing and really just study like her words and what that says about our world that we live in now and how I can apply that to my understanding of when I see a George Floyd or I see, you know, a Tamir Rice. So that's critical thinking. That is also culturally responsive pedagogy. 
I have to work with teachers quite a bit because they'll be excited about bringing multicultural text, but they may not be, you know, so excited to get to those critical thinking aspects of it yeah. and learning how to intertwine the standards to still being able to analyze what's being said. Don't just teach it just to teach, you know, yeah. race, but you got to still teach them, you know, theme if this is a fictional text. I also need to teach them purpose if it's nonfiction. And what rhetorical or whatever literary tools did this author use to drive up to and build the theme or the purpose? A lot of times they'll just separate the two and just, you know, teach it as something to say that they're teaching diverse texts. That's where you have an element of, of malpractice come in, really, because texts are provocative, you know, and they need to be handled carefully. They can be like dynamite. And if they're not framed correctly, it's really more about the pedagogy than the text. I'm wondering if you can just unpack this idea of cultural relevance in general, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. It's one of those phrases that we toss around in education that we're not all necessarily in agreement about what we're talking about when we say cultural right. relevance. I was working with a group of teachers one time a couple of years ago in a professional development, and we were using the text it's a short story by Charles Baxter called Snow. And one of the teachers said, well, I can't teach this text. It's not culturally relevant for my students because we were in a part of the country where it doesn't snow. And it's a coming of age story. And snow is something that's used kind of as a metaphor throughout the story. I felt like this teacher had a really fundamental misunderstanding about what we mean by cultural relevance <laughs> in making that statement. So I'm wondering if you can just clarify. It's just the idea of culture in and of itself, not just, you know, racially, but all of the different things that build culture, mm -hmm. you know, kids who may live with grandparents or, you know, kids who can't go straight home and their parents maybe, you know, put them in last key like I was. So what's culturally responsive is just teaching tolerance of those different types of cultures, what drives motivation. And mm -hmm. how people are doing and making the decisions they make within the text based off of, you know, what happens to them culturally. And so at the end of the day, like, we just have to be able to ensure that students have a wide, wide range of different perspectives that we can introduce them to, mm -hmm. especially in places that they may not get to. I had some students who had never even understood the plight of indigenous people. Like it, it's, it's my job to ensure that I, you know, provide mm -hmm. them with that information. But like you're saying, if a teacher does not deeply study that information, does not do the research prior to teaching that text, and they also do not do the work to understand the literary tools and the complexity within the text in and of itself, they could do more harm to our children. Yeah. yeah. And I think the misunderstanding by a lot of teachers that I've encountered has been that this idea of cultural relevance or cultural responsive teaching means that you shouldn't expect students to read or work with texts that are too far outside of their own experience and their own cultural because they can't relate to it. Whereas that is one of the whole purposes, like you That's were just saying, purpose. of literature is to introduce us to different time periods different yeah. ways of thinking, different opinions, different cultures. And so if I don't introduce, if I'm too afraid to introduce that to them, 
because it's too far outside of their own experience for them to relate to. It just makes their world small. And our whole it purpose does. is to make and their world bigger. It push them to be tolerant. Exactly. So that really leads me right into the thing that I'm super excited to talk to you about, which is, you know, the literature by its very nature and function, it's provocative. It can even be offensive. And we read it to understand other people and cultures and time periods. But there's this idea that in order to be culturally relevant or sensitive or anti-racist, that there is a huge portion of the anthology that's off limits to us because it's offensive. And it is. I mean, Flannery O'Connor, her stories are incredibly provocative and offensive by design. She wrote them that way on purpose. I just think that, you know, we have to be thoughtful about what we mean about, you know, things that's off limits. You know what yeah. I mean? Like if it's something that's taboo or, you know, sexual or whatever, like it could be something as easy as sending out a survey to parents saying, this is a text that I would like to teach this year. These are some of the, you know, issues that's about it. Here's how I would like to encounter it with your students. But this is the purpose as to why I think it would be really great to push their thinking along. What do you think? A lot of times Mm. we just, as teachers, don't bring parents into the conversation on what their children are being, you know, privy to. And so I do think that there are opportunities, even if we do think that it's a little provocative, you know, I mean, people still teach typewriter in schools and it's clearly a very difficult, you know what I'm saying, race scene in there, same sex at that. And, you know, I don't know. You're telling my story. When I taught 10th grade English, I desperately wanted to teach the kite runner and my administrators would not let me. And I get it. But it's still being taught. And, you know, (laughs) same with Huckleberry Finn. I definitely taught Huckleberry Finn. And the reason I did was because I wanted my kids to understand sarcasm. I -hmm. wanted them to be able to understand, like, how he was sarcastic putting this information out there. And so I didn't shy away from it, but I definitely tapped my parents in and let them know what my intentions were and, you know, letting them know that they can trust me with their child. I want to push their thinking. I want your child to be ready for this world when they get up out here, you know? And so just really having that strong relationship with parents, I think really speaks to whether or not you're going to be able to teach things that, you know, are provocative. I just believe in teaching that type of stuff. I just believe that we have texts that really challenge what we think that really challenge our beliefs, that is when that learning really happens. Yeah. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking and try to get them as much text as we can within that time. Because, of course, the more widely read students are that year, the better they do in vocabulary, the better they do in terms of closing gaps. So I'm wondering if, like, if that would be your number one go-to guideline for text selection would be make it a community decision. Do you have any other go-to guidelines for text selection beyond that? Yeah, I do think that, you know, if there are sexually explicit or even racially, you know, explicit or even with language that's very explicit and just it doesn't serve a point in driving towards standards, but it's just done to be done, which you don't really see a lot of that in text. You know what I'm saying? A yeah. lot of times those texts, like you said, with Flannery O'Connor, is just that it's, it's intentional and it's a point of being able to drive home whatever point she's trying to bring. 
just because it is such a tough time right now where we might not want to deal with texts that, you know, yeah. deal with a lot of death or even suicide at this time because it's just not, you know, we got to read the room. It's too triggering. This is not, yeah. I would definitely put that as something that I would tell teachers to be careful with in this day and age right now. Yeah. You know, they talk about how the our literary anthology is written in blood. Because all the texts are so dark by the time you get to high school. And I just think, what are we trying to do to these teenagers? My goodness. Give them something. Can they read anything light? We'll be right back. This is Jenny Eisenman, Chief Education Officer at Reading Plus. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. Reading Plus is a research-proven online program that provides personalized intervention and instruction for students. Reading Plus improves reading proficiency by 2.5 grade levels in a single school year by developing students' fluency, comprehension, vocabulary, and motivation to read. At Reading Plus, we believe that better readers spark brighter futures. You can find Reading Plus at edcuration.com. And now let's get back to the episode. Kina was telling us about her criteria for text selection. And then we veered off into a discussion about preparing students for standardized tests. For kids to actually do well in the SAT or PSAT, we have to do three things. We have to ensure that we push them past impressionistic reading, where they are literally just comprehending this based on the impressions or assumptions that they're getting from these texts. I got to make sure that they learn how to be explicit with that information and stick to what the author is saying. But Mm -hmm. two, I need to make sure that they learn how to formulate an opinion about what they're reading. The way to get kids to grow in that space is for a teacher not to tell them the answers to certain things or not to tell them what they think about it because young students will take that and feel like, that's my answer now. And yeah, they just want to give you back your answer as the right one. Exactly. But how do we get kids to that? Blog. Hmm. Make them blog. And so EduBlog is one of the top things that I always used to use to teach kids how to blog. I used to do it eighth grade up, but I definitely did it in my AP Lang and my AP Literature classes because they had to come up with their own opinions to pass the test, you know? Mm. And so the way that I trained them to do that is there's a article by Andrew Sullivan in the Atlantic called Why I Blog. And I always used to open the year up with that before Mm. we started blogging so they can understand the purpose of blogging. Thanks. On your session at the conference, you gave some really great tips for keeping students engaged during this digital and hybrid learning phase, which we all hope is going to be short and going to go away soon that we'll be back in our classrooms with our kiddos. But you talked about monitoring small group discussion and promoting connections. So I'm just wondering if you'd share a few of those pedagogical strategy tips with our listeners. Absolutely. Some of my favorite tips come from Kylie Beers' book, When Kids Can't Read and What Teachers Can Do. Mm, I mean, I know she wrote that thing probably about over a decade now, but the activities, tea party, say something, save the last word for me. Most important word, just some amazing activities that you can easily integrate within the classroom, especially in literacy spaces. Robert Probst 
does the same but for high school instruction and so he gives a lot of engaging activities in his book response and analysis one of my favorites is the silent seminar where you can take either like a, a picture or you can take a quote from a text or whatever and to try to build kids inferencing skills they get the opportunity to either interpret what's being said or ask a question about being said but they write these comments in silence on you know poster boards or whatever and so they work in collaborative frameworks in virtual spaces too i'm wondering if you have any favorite success stories from when you were in the classroom because it's always scary when you're a teacher thinking, wow, this is, I'm really demanding a lot of my kids. I don't know if they can do it. I'm wondering if you have a favorite success story or a student story where a student just really surprised you and you realized that our kids can do so much more than we think they can. Yes, so many stories. I think what really pushed my thinking as a teacher was when I left AP Lane, I just got in the habit of really testing my kids prior to us starting content so I can know what they knew and what they didn't know. So I can intentionally do that because you see so many teachers who will teach, you know, metaphor and simile and personification every single year, like the kids had not heard this since fourth grade. So I remember making this very deep decision that, okay, I'm going to teach my eighth graders rhetoric. And I know mm. that that is going to sound crazy. But if I can get them to understand like how thinking generates and how authors use tools to be able to build to deeper understanding or build to purpose, I felt like I would be able to unlock so much information for my students if I could do that. And it was totally an experiment. And I did mostly through Socratic seminar. But at the end of that year, I mean, I really had just taught a lot of the stuff that I taught and a lot of the concepts that I taught in AP Lane to my graders. And we were 92% proficient that year. That is and amazing. And I would have students who, like, we weren't even expecting to be, you know how they'll do a predictor and say that a kid is going to get, you know, below basic or whatever. And I had two kids who actually jumped up 120 points and became advanced. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. But if we just don't box our thinking as to yeah. what our students can and cannot accomplish and really just get as much data and information as we can to guide our steps, we can probably give them a lot of stuff. Then we just open up the world of possibility for our students right. to be literate when they yeah. graduate. Yep. And they may struggle. But if we don't give them the chance, for sure, they will never be able yeah. to accomplish it. Like, of course, they can't do it if we don't give them a chance, if we don't ask them to. I'm wondering if you have a very favorite text that you love to teach. I mean, that's a really hard question. It is because I love so many texts. My absolute favorite text to teach. I have two. Can I share two? Yep. Okay. My absolute favorite text to teach, just so that my students understand Black history a lot better, is Invisible Man. One, the language is unbelievable, but the allusions that he uses to Marcus Garvey, to W.E.B. Du Bois, to Booker T. Washington, like it's just a real, it's a one-stop shop to really teach students like the, the philosophies that existed by Black intellectuals mm. during that time and how that built out in HBCUs. And so it just brings up so many conversations that students can really engage in. And my second favorite book to teach, believe it or not, is, is Gatsby. Is it really? I mean, it's beautiful. Great Gatsby. Yeah. The language, 
the paradox, you know, juxtaposition, like yeah. all of these very, very competing factors that kids really need to know to process what they're going to read in college. Like, I just feel yeah. like Great Gatsby is kind of a rite of passage because it's not an easy book to read. It's very complex. Yeah. And it's so many things that you can do with it in terms of language and in terms of like the human condition mm-hmm. and different things that happen within class. Like yeah. you've got to be able to have these types of conversations in today's world. And so I just enjoy doing Great Gatsby for that reason too. Just for the record, my two favorite books to teach for many years were Of Mice and Men and The Merchant of Venice. So if I was a teacher listening to this episode, and I'm in a school or a district that is not really progressive in its pedagogy, and I was taught to teach in a style of pedagogy that doesn't really encourage a lot of critical thinking, what is one shift that I can make that would be doable for me as a teacher to start challenging my students more? I really think that just trying to tap into what's happening in the real world and attaching it to a short piece is the very easiest way to get into it. We have to be able to like know texts that we can go to that speak to what's happening now. Think about all the critical thinking pieces that come with that. If I can just pick something, you know, real world and just backtrack it so I can know like what seminal pieces from history can I put with this as literature so that my students are able to kind of make those connections? I mean, that's the very first step to critical thinking. Yeah, I love that. The strategy of pairing texts so that you can compare ideas and juxtapose them yeah. one, one against And one. I would also say that my second one is, I think that they work in tandem, but really getting good at Socratic seminar. I think that that is also a really big lever for a teacher to push because the more that they can really talk to students out loud (laughs) about what they're thinking about text and allowing, you know, pushback and debate questions to kind of drive that, Mm -hmm. that will also get students into a point of feeling comfortable enough to be able to share their thinking about certain topics. Yeah. It gets students talking to each other so that the dialogue in the classroom is student to student, not just teacher to student. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Kina, is there anything that I have not asked you that you wish I had? Anything you'd really like to touch on? People need to start tapping into the world of anthologies by people of color. They have some now where John Henry Clark, Dr. John Henry Clark, who was a professor of Africana Studies in New York and huge philosopher in Pan-Africanism, he has an anthology of all of the short stories that have been written throughout Black history. And what people have to recognize about like Harlem Renaissance, for instance, Harlem Renaissance was not something that was just happenstance, but something that was orchestrated because, you know, W.B. Du Bois wanted to push against the stereotypes that was coming out from Birth of a Nation and, you know, some of that Blackface that was starting to happen in Semina that was new at that mm-hmm. time. During the Harlem Renaissance, he challenged all of the magazines to have these contests and, you know, asking white benefactors and white patrons to support, you know, arts for people to tell their own stories. It was orchestrated. Mm -hmm. And so he has a collection of all of those texts in poetry, short story, and anthologies. Roberta Fernandez, she writes a lot from the feminist space of people of color particularly 
Latina women. Mm -hmm. And so there are some for Chicana literature. There are some for indigenous literature. I would just really suggest that people really start to look at that if you want to see, you know, more than just what's in, what's caught in the canon. Let's broaden our horizons a little bit. So is there a place that people can find you? Do you have a website? Do you have where you give access to any of these links or resources that you've discussed on the podcast? Yes, absolutely. You can go to my website, thesavvyurbaneducator.com. And I have all of these resources and lesson plans and graphic organizers and things like that. And I also, you know, blog a little bit, not a whole lot, but I'll put some information out about like vocabulary and different strategies that you can use for close reading. So the SavvyUrbanEducator.com. Okay. I'll make sure we put that link in the notes to the show at edcuration.com so that people can find you easily. Oh, thank you. And then also on Twitter, I'm also the Savvy Urban Ed there. Fabulous. Kina, thank you so much for spending this time with us at the end of your long workday today. We really appreciate you sharing all of these really great ideas and resources with our listeners. Super no helpful. No problem. I appreciate being asked. Thank well, so I know that you and I could probably talk about books for the next five years without oh, okay. stopping. So <laughs> maybe we'll do that on another conversation. <laughs> A reminder that today's episode is being sponsored by Reading Plus. Robin Lovick, a teacher at Sleeping Giant Middle School in Livingston, Montana, says, This program has been a great support in this time of off-site learning. With all the stress, it has brought some calm. The platform is clear and easy to use for both students and teachers. If you're looking for a way to keep your students reading during remote learning and beyond, you'll want to check out Reading Plus at edcuration.com. You can find the Ed Curation podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find our program notes at Podbean. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, and share us with your colleagues. Thanks for tuning in today to the Ed Curation podcast, where teachers talk curriculum.